0: of the Peter Schiff Show podcast starting out about 10 a.m., about a half hour after the open of the U.S. stock market. We've got some big news that the market is trading on, the nonfarm payroll report, and I will be talking about that shortly. First of all, the reason for the early podcast, I'm off for a father-son boat trip over the weekend and we're leaving this afternoon, so I had to get this podcast in early in order to make the boat. Uh, also, before I get it started, I want to thank everybody who uh, liked and subscribed to my last uh, YouTube video for this podcast. You know, I got 7% likes on that podcast. Uh, 9,500 people liked it. And I did a little research, and I found out that the average for likes on a podcast is 4%. And I went back at my and looked at all my podcasts, and I was averaging more in the threes. And I think it's because I never actually ask people to like these podcasts. I did it for the first time two podcasts ago, and I think that really helped because about 366,000 people ended up watching that uh, YouTube version of my podcast, which was my third or fourth most watched normal podcast ever. And I think the fact that there were a lot of early likes, I think, helped that with the algorithms. And so a lot of uh, people that don't normally listen to my podcast or watch my videos ended up watching it. But because so many people watched it without liking it, the likes went down. Even though I have 14,000 likes, uh, it was less than 4%. So what I want to try to do is I want to break the record. I had 14,000 likes on that podcast, 9,500 on the last podcast, but only 7%. I want to see if I can get 100%. I mean, that's kind of a, an elusive goal. I don't know if anybody's ever hit that goal in the history of YouTube, but we got to aspire for it. But at a minimum, I'd like to break the 14,000 likes that we got last time. So all you have to do is like the podcast. I mean, don't even wait till it's over, even if you don't like it, like it anyway, uh, so we can shoot for this record of the most podcast likes or certainly the highest percentage. So like the the, the video, subscribe to the video. Anyway, want to get into the jobs report that came out Earlier this morning, of course, we always get the jobs report on the first Friday of every month. This is the official U.S. government non-farm payrolls report for the month of September. And as has always been the case this year, this was another beat. We created a lot more jobs than what was expected. But what was unexpected was the revision to the prior month because I have been talking about this on the podcast so far this year, every single jobs report has been revised lower the following month. Until now, we actually had a substantial positive revision upwards to the prior month. So we were originally reported 187000 a non-farm payroll jobs in in August and the government just revised that to 227,000 jobs. So that was a surprise but another surprise was the magnitude of the beat. They were looking for 160,000 non-farm payroll jobs and we came out with 336,000 well north of the upper end of the forecast which was from 105,000 on the low side to 235,000 on the the high side. So this is a lot more than the markets were expecting. The unemployment rate though actually rose from 3.7% to 3.8%. It's still a very low unemployment rate, although the labor force participation rate didn't move. It stayed at 62.8. So Doesn't necessarily make sense why the unemployment rate rose with all those jobs being created and no addition to the labor force. But again, it's always hard to understand uh, these numbers. And I generally take them with a grain of salt because I don't necessarily believe them. Uh, Anyway, looking at some of the rest of it, the private sector added 263,000 jobs. That was well north of the 150,000 expected, although they did revise that down they initially had reported 179,000 private sector jobs for August and they revised that down to 177. So that means there was a huge increase in the number of government jobs that were created in August. Now I haven't really taken a deep dive into these numbers yet, I didn't have any time, but that's a big deal to have all those extra government workers added to the payrolls. Because remember there's a big difference between private sector workers and and government workers. Number one is the private sector workers, their salaries are paid for by the private sector. They're, They're covered by the profits of their employers. But government workers, their salaries have to be paid by the taxpayer. So if it's a local government worker, state or federal, then the local taxpayer has to pony up. Or if the states are going to run deficits, that means the state governments will have to borrow more money to pay these higher salaries. Now, at the federal level, we know that all of the extra federal workers will have to be paid for by debt because we're already running over $2 trillion deficits. So any additional money to hire federal workers is going to have to be borrowed. So all of that uh, adds to the inflationary pressures in the economy because money is gonna be created to pay the salaries of government workers. But the other problem is that government workers are not productive. I mean, some of them might be, but most of them are not. In fact, it's actually the opposite. Government workers actually add to the red tape that the private sector has to deal with. So in many cases, the government workers are subtracting from the productivity that would otherwise be created by the private sector workers. So when the private sector hires somebody to help produce goods or services that consumers want, that's a benefit and that should help keep prices down by increasing the supply of goods and services. But when government hires workers to administer rules and regulations that undermines the productivity of everybody else. Maybe some of these new employees are IRS agents. I know they've been talking a lot about hiring more IRS agents. Do you think extra IRS agents harassing small business owners is good for the economy? Do you think that's going to lead to a more productive economy? Absolutely not. To the extent that a lot of these small business owners have to waste their time dealing with an audit, uh, that means they can't focus on their business. If they have to divert some of their uh, I- income to accountants and lawyers, then maybe they have less uh, money to devote to more productive uh, uses that would lead to uh, more production of, of, of goods or uh, a greater supply of services. So these all subtract from GDP, uh, or maybe not GDP, but from actual production. I mean, they still get counted in GDP, but it's a waste of work because it's not leading to uh, greater output of goods and services. And if you're worried about inflation, One of the dynamics at play, it's not just the money supply growth, it's the goods and services that you can buy with that money supply. And so the more people that are working in the private sector, the more goods and services that are being produced for everybody to buy. And so that would tend to uh, produce lower prices, all else being equal. But if we have more government workers who are collecting paychecks but who are not adding to the productivity of society, who are in fact subtracting from that productivity by getting in the way, uh, by making the private sector less efficient than it otherwise would have been, resulting in a reduction in output, then it's inflationary. And so that's what uh, I'm learning from these revisions is that it's actually a bad thing. The fact that we have all these extra government workers uh, is a minus, uh, not a plus. but. This time around, we did have a a much bigger than expected gain in the private sector. Although, without having looked at these numbers closely, my guess is it's the same as we've had in the past where this is predominantly part-time, service sector, low-paying jobs, these jobs are being created because people can't get by on one or two jobs and they need a second or a third job because the real cost of living is rising so much faster than their incomes. It's rising so much faster than the official measures that they can't get by. People can't get by with just one job, so they need multiple jobs. So this is not a sign of a strong economy, but of a weak economy and a weak labor market because people can't get jobs that pay enough uh, to cover their bills. Anyway, we got a quick commercial break. We'll be right back with our, today's podcast. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want JoinDeleteMe.com slash gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to JoinDeleteMe.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's JoinDeleteMe.com slash gold, code gold. All right, I am talking about today's non-farm payroll report for the month of September, which surprised the markets by being stronger than expected. And one of the reasons it was a particular surprise was we got the uh, private sector numbers on Wednesday, the ADP jobs report, which was a miss. They were expecting 150,000 jobs created in September, and according to ADP, only 89,000 jobs were created. So there's a big uh, disparity there between the estimate of private sector payroll from ADP and the estimate by the government. Now, personally, I would put more credibility on the ADP number because they, they don't have the political pressure uh, to come out with a good number. Because, you know, Biden is going to be out today. I haven't heard any speeches, but I'm sure he's going to have his minions uh, on all of the news networks talking about the success of Bidenomics and pointing to this big beat and all the jobs that were created and, and taking credit for the creation of those jobs. Which, again, you don't want to take credit for jobs that people wish they didn't have if people are forced to take a second or third job because their main job no longer pays enough to to cover the bills, uh, you don't wanna brag about forcing people to moonlight, right? But of course they never bring this up. I mean, just like Biden claimed credit, as soon as he came into office and we we shut down the the pandemic uh, lockdowns, a lot of people went back to their jobs and Biden claimed credit for creating all these jobs, even though no jobs were created. The jobs were put on hold, right? People want to say, look at all the jobs that were lost under Trump. It was only because Trump signed on uh, to the shutdown of the economy. And the jobs weren't really lost. They were put on pause, right? They they were reset when Biden came in. But Biden isn't responsible for creating any jobs. Those jobs had already existed. It's just that the workers weren't showing up because the government ordered them uh, to close down. But again, so Biden's not going to uh, point out uh, the quality of these jobs. He's just going to focus on the quantity. Now, the one, I guess, bright spot in the jobs report, and again, that depends on your perspective, right? The good news is bad news, was the average hourly earnings, which rose less than expected. Now, that's not good news for the workers because they're not getting paid as much. But I guess it's good news for people who are hoping that the Fed will pay attention to this and maybe not uh, not inc- increase rates as much or not increase rates anymore. So we rose 0.2 instead of 0.3. And year-over-year, year, average hourly earnings were up 4.2% rather than the 4.3% that had been expected and a little bit lower than the 4.3% year-over-year year increase from the previous number. But as soon as these numbers came out, the bond market got clobbered. And we are now at new lows for this move, new high in yield. The high watermark for the 30 year U.S. Treasury so far this morning is 5.053. Now, we're back below 5% now as I'm doing this live podcast. We're at 4.995. But, you know, we'll probably finish the day back above 5% if I had to guess. But this is the first time we've had a 5 handle on a 30-year treasury since 2009. And it wasn't up there for long. But this is a big deal that we have 5% interest rates. Now, again, I've been predicting this. Most analysts, including the bond specialist, they they didn't think this was even possible. There was no way they thought we can get up to 5%, yet here we are. And we're not going to stop here, because remember, you can get 5% on on a six-month bill or or five and a half. So why should you settle for five on a 30-year and take 30 years of risk? So we're headed uh, for a seven-handle, as far as I can see. Uh, you know, well, obviously we got to get to the sixth handle first, but I think by next year, unless the Fed panics, we'll have a seventh handle. But even if they do panic, we're going to get there anyway. It may just take a little longer, but there's no way uh, for the Fed to stop this. It's like, you know, it's like Canuck, King Canuck and the tide, right? You can't yell at the tide and stop it from coming in. This is going to be a, a massive flood and there's no way that the Fed can hold back the deluge long term rates are headed much higher. Yes, they were able to artificially suppress them for a lot longer than I thought, but those days are gone, right? Inflation is out of the bag, and you're not going to get it back in. There's no more 2% inflation. Uh, In fact, I even heard some rumblings this week uh, from some Fed officials, you know, I don't know, you know, taking a look at that, uh, you know, there's there's starting to be a little crack in the idea that we're going to get down to 2%, but 5% is a big deal 6 and 7% will be even bigger deals look at the 10 year US treasury it is yielding 4.828 the high water mark earlier this morning so far was i mean 4.828 the high water mark was 4.887 but again this is the high we've been for this cycle we'll be over 5% on the 10 year shortly. We haven't been above 5% since 2007. And then we just barely peaked our head above 5%. It didn't stay above 5% very long. It was kind of like a spike. But this is just a stepping stone to much, much higher rates because we have a far bigger debt problem. In fact, that debt problem looks to be spiraling out of control. I talked on my podcast about two weeks ago, just over two weeks ago, when the national debt hit 33 trillion for the first time. I pointed out that the last trillion from 32 trillion to 33 trillion took just three months to add. Now I pointed out that it took 40 presidents like 160 years whatever to get the first trillion because we didn't even have a trillion dollar debt until 1980 and that was when uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was president. So from George Washington through Ronald Reagan, all those presidents combined, you know, ran up a trillion dollars of debt. And, of course, most of that was, you know, towards the end, right, in the 60s and 70s. That's where all the debt came from. Prior to that, I mean, we had some World War II debt, but we, you know, paid most of that down, really. Uh, so it was really the Great Society programs, Lyndon Johnson, uh, you know, all that stuff. And you know, and then the Vietnam War, that really racked up the debt to the point where it got to a trillion when Ronald Reagan showed up, but we added the last trillion in uh, three months. And I thought, well, maybe that was a record. I wasn't really sure because we were racking up the red ink pretty quickly uh, for a few months during COVID. But now, for sure, we are on pace for a record because we've almost added half a trillion in just over two weeks. As I am looking at the national debt clock live right now, the national debt stands at 335 four seven eight seven six trillion so almost four point seven nine trillion that's almost half a trillion in just over two weeks which means we're close to a run rate at the current pace of a trillion dollars a month I mean a little bit more so maybe not 12 trillion a year annualized but 11 trillion a year now Obviously, we can't keep up this pace. We can't possibly add $11 trillion to the national debt in one year. But who knows? But something has got to be going on. There's got to be a reason for this explosion in the national debt. Nobody seems to be talking about it, but it seems to be indicative of a big problem. Something must be going wrong with revenues. Revenues must be falling, and they probably are falling, because the economy, despite this so-called good news on job creation, the economy is actually weak. Businesses are failing. Tax receipts are probably down at the federal level. And there probably is more government spending than we realize. And that's why these deficits are exploding. The national debt is jumping. And that's also why bond yields are rising. It is supply. You have all this supply. In fact, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet was down about $50 billion Uh, last week we're now back below eight trillion for the first time in a long time and so all that is adding to supply larger deficits are adding to supply and so the price has to go down the yield has to go up and of course the extra supply uh, raises the specter of inflation because the more debt we have the less likely we are to repay it with honest money the more likely we are to inflate which means you need higher interest rates to cover a bigger inflation premium. We got a quick commercial. We'll be right back with more podcasts. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, Convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. So I want to now focus my attention on some of the market reaction to the stronger than expected uh, non-farm paywall report and the dive in uh, in bond prices. You know, bonds have been obliterated this year. People are losing a ton of money in bonds, as I predicted last year. A lot of people thought after last year's bloodbath that this would be a good year to own bonds. And I said, no, it's going to be another bad year. In fact, this is going to be the third consecutive down year for bonds. I'm not even sure when that happened last, uh, but it's been an obliteration. I mean, people are going to be down more than 50%, you know, on their bond portfolios, which are supposed to be safe. People are learning a new lesson in in safety. But I also think that next year, 2024, will be another down year. I can't see bonds rallying in 2024, given the surge that I expect in inflation. Even if the Fed goes back to QE, I still don't think they're going to be able to stop uh, yields from, from rising. Now, if they do, if they print so much money that they actually stop Treasury yields from rising, The yield on everything else is going to rise so much more. Because if the Fed is the only buyer of treasuries because the yields are below inflation, uh, then um, the yield on every other piece of paper that the Fed is not buying is going to have to reflect reality, which means corporate yields, muni bond yields are going to skyrocket even more. Uh, And so that's just going to be a subsidy. The Federal Reserve is going to be allowing the U.S. government to pay lower interest rates. The trade-off is going to be everybody in the private sector has to pay higher interest rates. And of course, that is a huge problem because if the government is getting to borrow cheap only because the private sector has to pay more, that means we get less real private sector investment. The government crowds out the private sector. The government gets a subsidy paid for by the private sector. And so we have more borrowing to consume by government and less borrowing to produce by the private sector. Again, this is a recipe for disaster. There is no way out of this. If the Fed tries to, you know, go Japanese and print enough money so that the U.S. government can actually afford uh, to pay its interest, uh, it's going to exact a heavy toll on the economy and everybody else in terms of higher inflation and an even higher interest rates. But going to the market reaction. The stock market is not doing nearly as bad as you would have thought. The NASDAQ, as we're, I'm speaking, is almost back uh, positive. It's about unchanged. It was initially down, which is what you would expect. You know, the good news is bad news, especially when you look at the bond market. But the NASDAQ is barely down on the day. The Dow Jones uh, is still down about 115 points, but it was down better than 200 points earlier in the morning. Uh, again I think stocks are really missing the mark here maybe people are thinking okay this is it maybe five percent is as high as we're going to go in yields and therefore stocks can rise because bonds are going to stop falling it's not about bonds continuing to fall or yields keep rising if yields stay where they are right now that is a huge problem for stocks even if bonds never go down again from here. If we just stay at this 5% level, the stock market needs to be much lower. The market is not priced for these kind of yields. It's priced for much lower yields. The PEs are much too high for a 5% uh, tenure. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Plus, if you think about the impact that these higher yields are going to have on corporate earnings, all these corporations have lots of debt. The debt's all going to mature, it's going to have to be rolled over at much higher rates. And not 5%. You know, I haven't talked really about the prime rate on this show, but prime is at 8.5%. Now, for all the years that the Fed was at zero, the prime rate was stuck at 3.5%. Now, the prime rate is where the private sector buys, but it's hard to buy borrow right at prime. I mean, that's where the private sector borrows. Normally, loans are prime plus something prime plus one uh, prime plus two so if you're borrowing at prime plus two that's ten and a half percent that's a lot of uh, rates to have to pay but my point is that the government the private sector these companies when their bonds mature and now they got to roll them over, <clears throat> they're going to be paying a much higher rate of interest than what they had been paying and that extra interest expense, comes directly from their bottom line. So corporate earnings are going to go down. Now, there are some corporations that might not have debt. They may have more cash than debt, in which case they can earn a little money on their cash when they weren't earning it before. But I have a feeling that a lot more companies have more debt on their books than cash. And so they're going to be negatively impacted to their earnings from higher rates. But it's not just their expenses that that go up. Their revenue goes down. Because their customers are in the same boat. Whether their customers are corporations or individuals, those customers now have to pay higher interest on their debt, which means less money left over to buy the products and services that the corporations are selling. So, th- th- this is a big negative. I mean, the, the markets are just whistling past this graveyard in not appreciating how much has changed and why stock prices have to be a lot lower. Unless investors still don't believe these interest rates are gonna stick around. They still believe the Fed's gonna slash rates back down near zero. And so they're not factoring this in as a long-term situation. They just think it's a blip on the radar and it's just a little detour on the road back to 0%. The markets are wrong. The markets have to come to term with this and that means lower prices. But you know, Janet Yellen, tried to throw the markets a bone the other day. She came out and said that higher for longer is not a given. Now, first of all, what is the Secretary of the Treasury doing commenting on Fed policy? All these guys always say that, oh, no, no, the Fed is independent, right? We don't want to talk about Fed policy. We don't want to talk about uh, interest rates. That's up to the Fed. Well, why is she stepping on Powell's toes? Why is she coming out there and saying that, well, higher for longer is not a given? I mean, what has she got to do with it? Right? She doesn't get to make the decisions, or does she? Does that imply that behind-the-scenes arm-twisting is already going on? Has uh, Powell been brought uh, to the White House to talk to Biden, or maybe not Biden because he's incoherent, but whoever is pulling the strings on the Biden puppet and maybe uh, Janet Yellen, maybe they're trying to get his mind right and say, "Wait a minute, you know this hire for longer ain't going to work because we got an election coming up, and so we certainly don't want to be higher that long because we got to we got to get elected, and Biden's poll numbers are dropping, and and so you know you better you better cooperate. So maybe that's going on because normally you wouldn't see uh, the secretary of the treasury. I mean, she used to be the Fed chairman, but she's not that she's not Fed chair anymore, right? So it's supposedly none of her business." but she seems to be implying uh, that they've got some influence on rates. If she's going to say that it's not a given that it's going to be higher for longer, why is it a given? Well, because maybe she knows something that the administration is going to put pressure on the fed to, um, to, to, to say something to save the markets. But again, it's not going to work because it only worked before because the markets were fooled into thinking that inflation was below 2% as far as the eye can see. Once the market realizes that high inflation is here to stay, it's a whole new ballgame, right? And it's strikeout uh, for for the Fed. But the most interesting market reaction is not in the stock market, but in the, the gold market, because you would have thought, again, that gold would have been clobbered today because of the strong economic numbers, which have traditionally been bad for gold because gold is supposedly something you buy when times are bad, not when times are good. And job creation is supposed to be a reflection of good times. But also gold has been trading with bonds, bonds down, gold down, because the algorithms look at rising yields as being bearish for gold. Now, I think they're bullish. I've been saying this all along, and I expect a decoupling from bonds and gold so that they go in the opposite direction. Bonds down, gold up, meaning Gold rises as yields rise, because why are bonds going down? Inflation, they're going down because of a loss of confidence in the U.S. government's ability to uh, handle its debts. It's because the deficits are spiraling out of control. That's all good for gold. Everything that is driving bonds down should be driving gold up. That's just what the programmers of these algorithms didn't understand. Well, soon they're going to have to reprogram them, especially if today's action means that we have decoupled, because instead of going down, gold is up. Now, it's not a huge move, uh, but it's still a move. Gold's up about seven bucks. Now, the initial reaction, right, as soon as the number came out and, and bonds tanked, gold dropped $10. So that was the initial knee-jerk reaction, was a sell-off in, uh, in gold. Now, bonds have rallied from their lows, but they're still way down. On the other hand, gold has actually reversed, and it's gone from $10 decline to a $7 rise. Now, it's still early in the morning, so maybe this can turn into a a bigger rise for the price of gold. Gold stocks, though, uh, are up about a percent, and they've been strong. They were strong yesterday, even though the price of gold wasn't. So the gold stocks may be leading uh, the metal higher right now. What would help would be a reversal in the dollar. The dollar index is still positive on the day, although it was down yesterday. We're below the highs for the move, and it looks like we're in the process of rolling over. The dollar index, as I'm doing this podcast, is 106.575. But if we reverse and end up finishing the day negative, that could also confirm that we have a, um, a reversal in the gold market. Also looking on the weeklies, uh, both the gold chart and the dollar chart to see if we can get any kind of significant uh, weekly reversal. I'll be able to comment on that on my next podcast because clearly I'm going to finish up today's podcast long before uh, we close trading uh, for for the week. The markets though are continuing to recover as I'm talking and now the NASDAQ has climbed into the black. It's now up almost uh, two tenths of a percent as people are buying these uh, these tech stocks, even the Dow now is only down about 53. So again, I think it's because people are betting that maybe this is it, that 5% was all we had to do. In fact, what a lot of people are now saying, and I heard this refrain quite a bit yesterday, is that the Fed has probably done hiking, that there's no more hikes. I know the Fed was talking about an extra quarter point, but what everybody is saying is that, given how much bond yields have risen on their own, that basically is equivalent to another quarter point. And so the Fed doesn't have to hike because the markets have tightened for them. And maybe that is the case. Maybe the Fed is going to back off. Because again, the Fed does whatever the markets expect. And so if the markets expect that the Fed's not going to hike anymore, if that's what the probabilities show because they think they don't have to because the market did their work for them, then maybe there won't be a hike coming up uh, this year. But that's wrong. That these higher long-term rates are not going to uh, produce the impact on inflation because the point of the rate hikes is to bring inflation down. Well, the fact that bond yields have moved up is not going to bring inflation down. In fact, the reason that bond yields are moving up is because inflation is moving up too. It's a reflection of higher inflation. What it shows is that the Fed has lost its battle against inflation. It's not winning, it has lost. And if it stops hiking rates, that's the equivalent of a surrender. That's an official acknowledgement that the inflation war has been lost. That's when gold really takes off. That's when the dollar really takes a dive when the markets figure this out. Now, they should already know this. It seems obvious to me that that is the case. But for some reason, they haven't been able to figure it out. They're going to learn a lesson the hard way. Now, another thing, too, that I think is going to be a big problem for the national debt, because a lot of people are focusing on the interest costs of the national debt, which are spiraling out of control. Uh, Interest, again, is just past national defense. It's the third biggest line item in the federal budget. By the end of next year, it'll be number one. It's going to pass Social Security, and it's going to pass Medicare. That is a huge problem to have to pay uh, that much. And I talked on the last podcast that in a few years, if this continues without an implosion, The government will be spending more than it collects in taxes on interest, which means there'll be no money left to pay anything else legitimately. Every penny for Social Security, Medicare, national defense, everything the government does, every penny will have to be borrowed because the tax revenue will be earmarked for debt on the spending of the past. So all the spending in the future will have to be financed with future debt. Now, obviously, we can't get there. There's no way we can get to that point, which is only a few years off on our current trajectory. So either the government has to act fiscally responsibly, which I'm going to rule that out. So the only other way to stop this from happening is a complete collapse, right? A financial crisis, massive uh, economic crisis, collapse of the dog. That's what's going to happen. That's what's going to break the cycle. Not our politicians acting responsibly because there's no precedent for them ever doing that. Uh, But there is precedent for having a crisis. The only the, the, the difference is past crisis, the Fed was able to bail us out this time can't happen because when the crisis is in the Treasury market, it's in the US dollar. There's no bailout. See, as long as it was just private sector mortgages or banks, the government could bail everybody out because people had confidence in what they were using to finance the bailouts. As long as people are willing to hold dollars and buy treasuries, the bailouts work. But once the crisis involves a loss of confidence in the dollar in treasuries, then there are no more bailouts because you can't bail out companies with money that people don't have confidence in. It doesn't work. And that's where we're headed. So when the crisis is a sovereign debt crisis, there are no bailouts. You know, when it's a currency crisis, there are no bailouts. There's just a crisis, which means it's going to get much, much worse. But the other point I just want to make is the principle. Everybody just assumes that, well, the principal doesn't matter, right? We just have to worry about paying the interests. We don't have to worry about repaying the principal. Oh, yes, we do. And here's why. The way it works now, when a bond matures, the holder of that bond can get his money back, right? The government owes the money. So you loan money to a government for a set time period. Let's say that time period is one year, right, a one-year T-bill, or it could be a 10-year Treasury bond. But you may own a 10-year Treasury bond that the government issued nine years ago. And so in a year, we owe the principal. Now, in the past, that wasn't an issue because we could just sell another bond to pay off the maturing principal. And so we didn't have to worry about paying back the money because we could always borrow more money to pay back the uh, the old uh, borrower, the lender. Now, of course, I pointed out that that's a Ponzi scheme, right? That's exactly what it is. It's Ponzi financing. You pay off your old investors with money from your new investors. But we just assumed that the Ponzi scheme could go on forever. Well, there's one thing we know about Ponzi schemes is that they can't go on forever. I mean, as much as you want them to, they can't, which is why they're illegal, right? Because eventually they fall apart. Well, this is the point that we're coming to now because When our bonds mature, I don't think there's going to be a buyer to buy a new one, not unless rates go way up. Because if the Fed has to stop rates from rising, whether the breaking point is here at 5%, 5 5.5%, 6%, 7%, at some point, the Fed is going to reach a level where it's like we can't let rates go up anymore because it's it's a complete disaster well the only way they can stop rates from going up is by creating more inflation and monetizing more debt but that makes the treasury bonds less attractive to private buyers so if the private buyers decide that if the fed is going to do yield curve control and it's not going to let the yield rise above a certain level then the private sector is not going to buy because it's a lousy deal and so now We can't roll over the maturing debt. So now we put the Fed in a position that it has to do quantitative easing. It has to buy all the debt that nobody else wants. That means we're now actually at a point where we're having to repay principal, but we can't. And so the Fed is monetizing the principal, and now it's massive uh, inflation. That is where this whole thing is headed. And it's not that we never have to repay this money. If we expect private creditors to continue to participate in the Ponzi and loan us more money, we have to pay them an adequate return to do that. But if we can't afford to pay that return, because it's too big a price tag, and so the Fed has to monetize it instead, you know that's the inflation just spiraling out of control. Now again, the real solution to this is default. That's what we have to do. We have to honestly default. The US government needs to tell its creditors, we don't have the money and we can't pay, right? Now, there's two ways they can default. They can say, okay, we're gonna give you 50 cents on the dollar, whatever that is. Another thing they could do is extend the maturities. They could tell people, hey, you know, a couple of years ago, you bought a a two-year treasury that had a 1% uh, coupon. Well, you know what, we can't, we don't have the money. So we're going to extend the maturity to 30 years. So we're going to pay you back, but in 30 years. In the meantime, you're just getting 1% on your money from now until then, because that's all we could afford, right? And of course, that's like a default because the bond would crash in value. It, maybe it would be worth 40 cents on the dollar if we did something like that. But there are no easy way ways out. I mean, people are going to lose a lot of money uh, one way or another. Either they're going to lose a lot of money, or their money is going to lose a lot of value. But either way, everybody's going to be poorer. Every creditor of the U.S. government is going to be much poorer. Everybody who owns U.S. dollars is going to be much poorer. That's why I keep encouraging my audience to get out of U.S. dollars. Don't be a creditor of the U.S. government or any government or any corporation. You're going to get wiped out. You know, just like I encouraged everybody to take out 30-year mortgages if they were to buy a house, that was a great financial decision because now you've got a huge asset in the fact that you owe a bank money. That bank has a huge liability in that, They've loaned out money for 30 years at a rate that's substantially below the current rate. That's why all the banks are insolvent, because they made a lousy deal, right? The government conned them into doing a lousy deal uh, with their customers. That's one of the reasons that my bank never invested in these long-term mortgages or treasuries. I wasn't dumb enough to loan out money for 30 years uh, for 3%, right? But the banks were that dumb. How would they get that dumb? Because of the Fed. And, and government policy, they dumbed everybody down. Plus, I guess the banks always figured that doesn't matter. The government's got our backs. If we ever get into trouble, they'll cut rates. Well, they can't do that when the problem is inflation. And, and that's where we are right now. But a couple of other points I wanted to make before I wrap this podcast up, some things I saw in the news. California just increased the minimum wage for fast food workers to $20 per hour. Think about that $20 an hour, you know, to to, uh, you know, serve the French fries, you know, or make the milkshakes. (laughs) These are the entry level jobs, right? These are the jobs that our kids are supposed to have, uh, you know, while they're still in high school. Right. But clearly no one's going to hire a high school kid uh, and pay him $20 an hour. I mean, unfortunately, now people are trying to raise families on these jobs. And of course, you can't because there's no productivity there. But what is the government going to achieve by forcing the owner of a fast food restaurant to pay its employees $20 an hour? Well, it's going to force a lot of these fast food restaurants to minimize the number of uh, employees they have, either because they automate uh, or because they just eliminate some jobs altogether. Uh, Some restaurants might actually go out of business. If they can't afford uh, these higher uh, wages. Now, some people will end up earning the $20 an hour, but that will be at the expense of those workers who earn $0 an hour because they've been they've been fired, right? This does not help the worker. What the minimum wage does is it says, hey, if you want to get a job at a fast food restaurant, you've got to be able to deliver $20 an hour of productivity to the owner of that restaurant. And if you can't do it, it's illegal for you to work there. So maybe there's a worker who can deliver $15 an hour of productivity and he wants a job. Well, now he's prevented from getting a job, right? It doesn't help workers. It hurts workers. It diminishes their employment opportunities. But to the extent that some workers do get a raise as a result of this, everybody is going to pay higher prices. Because the businesses, the fast food businesses, are going to be less competitive. And therefore, they're going to or they're going to have to charge higher prices. And of course, that's going to result in lower sales. Because when it costs more to eat at a fast food restaurant, uh, people will eat there less often. And, and so again, lower volume probably means fewer workers are needed to work these restaurants. More of these restaurants are going to close. Uh, this is bad news. But this just shows you how the politicians think right let's just let's just pass this who's behind it Oh, the labor unions like it uh, because it drives up uh, wages for other jobs uh, but again too if the fast food restaurants are paying twenty dollars an hour and you want to hire an unskilled laborer you might have to pay them twenty dollars an hour too otherwise they're going to go and work at a fast food restaurant assuming that there's still a job there but wages are going to be going up in other sectors as a result of, uh, of this, of this higher, higher minimum wage. Although again, it is gonna put a lot of people who used to work in fast food out of work. And so that might uh, mean that there's a, a larger pool of people uh, to work these other jobs. So that, that impact might be somewhat mitigated, but clearly this is a sign of more inflation. Why are they having to jack up the minimum wage so high because of inflation, because of the increase in the cost of living. And the fact that this is happening, you know, we still have the strike going on uh, from the UAW uh, workers. All of this is uh, the result of inflation and is going to keep this, this spiral going. By the way, I, I did look at some of the economic data and I noticed that we finally had a, a meaningful drop in the trade deficit. Uh, merchandise trade deficit dropped down to 58.3 billion. Uh, that's the lowest I've seen it in a while. It was $65 billion. A lot of this is now because imports are coming down. Uh, but the main reason I think imports are coming down is because people are consuming less stuff because everything costs more. Now, it would be even more expensive if it wasn't for the strong dollar. But people are buying less stuff. They're just paying more for that stuff You know, once they buy it. But the fact that we're seeing this big drop in the trade deficit, you know this is good from a macroeconomic perspective. I mean, lower trade deficits are good. They're better than higher trade deficits. They will add somewhat to the GDP because a uh, a larger trade deficit subtracts. But it shows you what's going on. It shows you that the consumer doesn't have the purchasing power. Because if he did, he'd be buying more imports. Because unfortunately, we don't make the stuff. All of the, the, uh, the, uh, factory and production numbers have been weak. Even though this week we got a few numbers that were not as weak as expected. We got the September PMI that's still below 50. It came out at 49.8. ISM manufacturing came out at 49. Not quite as weak as they expected and not as weak as the 47.6 from the prior month, but it's still below 50. You still have a contracting number in, uh, in manufacturing. Uh, so if consumers had the buying power they wouldn't be able to spend their money on u.s produced goods because we're not producing those goods so they would be spending them on imports so the fact that the imports are coming down that does show you that even though americans have all these jobs they don't have a lot of purchasing power because they're not buying uh imported products what are they buying they're buying food right a lot of that is homegrown but they're paying their rent uh, instead of buying stuff they're paying for insurance they're paying taxes, they're paying maintenance, they're paying for health care, right? all that is domestic. So all their money is being used up. They don't have the money left over to buy a lot of the things that they want, and most of that stuff is is what is imported. Anyway, I think I think that wraps it up for for today's podcast. I know I got to uh get out of here. I got to get off on this um on this boat trick, I'm going to just check if I had anything written down that I wanted to say. Now, I think I think that pretty much wraps it up. But again, I'm looking at the markets, a final look. I mean, the Dow is still uh, negative, rolling back over a little bit. Uh, gold surrendering some of those gains, but it's still in the black. This is going to be an interesting day to see how everything settles up. But this is just a a pit stop in the bond market. If you think that we're done at 5% that we finally achieved something because we got to a five handle on a 30 year and that's kind of like a a blow off top and it can't go any higher than that. (laughs) Believe me it can and it will 5% is still a low yield uh, based on modern history. But we shouldn't have normal yields. We have an abnormal amount of debt The level of debt and the trajectory of the debt call into question our ability to repay it with anything but hyperinflated dollars. And so the U.S. should pay a substantial premium to borrow money honestly, which means we can't have historically normal interest rates. We have to have historically high interest rates. And historically, interest rates have been a lot higher than they are now even when we were in a much better fiscal position than we're in now. So we're in for much, much higher interest rates, far higher long-term bond yields, a much steeper yield curve, but it's happening at a time where we've never been so leveraged. We have more debt, and now we're about to have to pay more than ever to service that debt. It is impossible. So either we have to have massive defaults or massive inflation, but one way or another, these losses are gonna be huge. The only way to avoid these losses is to avoid the dollar, avoid avoid U.S. debt. Again, call up SHIFT Gold, get yourself some gold and silver before the explosive move up, and talk to the guys at Europe Pacific Asset Management about um, uh, reallocating your portfolio, getting out of overpriced U.S. stocks, getting out of uh, U.S. debt instruments, and getting into foreign dividend-paying value stocks and the type of companies that will do well Uh, with stagflation and in particular in an environment where the US dollar is crashing and the US dollar is losing its reserve currency status, where the US is mired in in a recession, depression, uh, banking crisis. There are companies around the world that can still do well in that environment provided that the dollar is falling because the falling dollar provides a tremendous relief uh, for consumers and businesses outside the United States And that should be reflected in in higher asset prices. Anyway, have a great weekend, everybody. And I'll be back again next week.